Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Dan Embender here. Thanks for joining us for this very important episode. Recall that in the last episode, episode 126, we discussed pregnancy and aortic disorders as part of our cardio obstetric series. This episode brought to mind episode 76, where our colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic taught us about a woman named Lizzie Gasser, who at the young age of 27, at 39 weeks of gestation, tragically presented with postpartum pulmonary edema, found to have papillary muscle rupture, and was ultimately diagnosed with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome at autopsy. Now, in this very special episode, we meet Lizzie Gasser beyond her heart disease through the eyes of her loving husband, Todd Gasser. Her legacy underscores the importance of seeing our patients as people beyond their illness in the context of their lives, values, and loved ones. This powerful discussion is led by Dr. Erica Hutt and Dr. Eunice Dugan, along with Dr. Hal Dietz, who is one of the world's leading authorities in Marfan syndrome and one of the people who describe Lois Dietz syndrome. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Movement, or the VEDS. The Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Movement's mission is to save lives and improve the quality of life of individuals with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome by pursuing the most innovative research, educating the medical community, general public, and affected individuals, and providing support for patients, families, and caregivers. The Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Movement, which is a division of the Marfan Foundation, charges forward and improves the outcome for those living with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Individuals affected with VEDS can access medical webinars presented by the experts, join support groups, get involved in events and research, and donate by visiting the VEDSmovement.org. Providers can also find resources, including CME opportunities, at the same website. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Everything is 100% HIPAA compliant. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, and thanks for joining us in this very special episode. I am Erica Hutt, Cleveland Clinic Cardiology Fellow. You might remember me from episode number 76, the case report titled Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome with Postpartum Papillary Muscle Rupture. Taking care of that patient had a deep impact on me, and I will never forget her. Today, we are granted with the opportunity of learning more about her personal life story from her husband, Todd Gasser. Joining us are Dr. Eunice Dugan and Dr. Hal Dietz. Eunice is currently a third-year medical resident at Johns Hopkins, and I'm very excited to say that she'll be joining us for our fellowship program at Cleveland Clinic in less than six months. Eunice is originally from Wisconsin and completed her medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She's a key member of the CardioNerds family as a chief of house TOSIG in the CardioNerds Academy. And she enjoys singing, volleyball, traveling, and bar trivia. Welcome, Eunice. Thank you, Erica. It's a great honor to be a part of this special episode. It also gives me great pleasure to introduce our very special guest, Dr. Hal Dietz. Dr. Dietz is very well known in the medical community as the world's leading authority on Marfan syndrome and other connective tissue disorders, including Lois Dietz syndrome, which carries his name after he described the syndrome along with Dr. Bart Lois. 
He's an associate professor of medicine and an assistant professor of neurological surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's the Victor A. McCusick Professor of Genetics and also serves as the director of the William S. Milo Center for Marfan Syndrome Research. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dietz. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Dr. Dietz. It's our pleasure to have you. And now I get the honor of introducing Todd Gasser, who's our patient's husband and father of their baby girl, who's now an infant and about to actually turn a year old. I remember the night I met Todd and Lissy's mother, as well as Lissy. And I'll never forget the mixed feeling of emotions I could see in Todd's expression when he came to the unit. He had just become a father, but instead of enjoying those crazy days at home with a newborn, he was there in the hospital supporting his wife through it all. There's no question that caring for Lizzie would have been way more complex had it not been for the context that Todd and Lizzie's mom provided for us. The family history in her case was absolutely essential. Todd, we can't thank you enough for joining us today to honor Lizzie's memory and learn more from her story. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure to be here, and thanks for taking the opportunity to uh, share Lizzie's story. Todd, can you tell us more about Lizzie? How was she as a person? What did she enjoy the most? How did it feel being around her? Yeah, so Lizzie, I think, can be described as little but mighty. She was around five foot, maybe five foot one, weighed 100 pounds, but she had a lot of energy, a lot of spunk. And I think you talk to her friends and family, that's the way that they would describe her as just uh, fiery. But yeah, little but mighty. So. She enjoyed being outside. She loved being in the sunshine. She loved to just be warm. And so she moved from California to Ohio, which I'm not quite sure why. But yeah, she missed the sunshine a lot coming and being in Ohio. So we love to go on vacation. We love to travel and we love to seek after warmth and sunshine when we travel. And how did you guys meet? So we actually uh, met on a mission trip in Jamaica. So we were in the sunshine when we met. Maybe that's what made her accept me (laughs) at the time. So, And then after we met in Jamaica, she went back to California and I went back to Ohio. And then we were married approximately a year after that. And she moved to Ohio to be with me. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, one of the things we all kind of had the privilege to see was the video one of your family members made in her honor. And it was so special to watch that and to learn more about her through that video. You know, and one part that really touched me was how so many members from the community had come to honor her uh, and kind of the funeral line when you guys were driving. It was just so very special to see What did Lizzie mean to to the people of the community and to her family? How did she impact them? I would say she impacted them by her example. She was a go-getter. She got things done. And I think a lot of people looked up to her for this quality. And it definitely motivated me in life to get things done, be more efficient. And I think that just inspiring to have that quality and to to want to do things. I mean, she was the first person to help you out and she could see what needed to be done. I just remember back to um, when we would have family dinner at my mom's house and, you know, she wouldn't have to be asked to help clean up. She would just be right there and doing it. And I think that carried over to her work life, to her friends and just could, could see where to help out. 
could see the need. Wow, Todd, she was certainly very special. And I think I can totally see that through the video that you shared with us. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened with Lisi from a medical perspective. I'll sort of summarize it. As I said, you've probably seen the episode, but Lizzie was a 27-year-old woman who developed postpartum papillary muscle rupture after being admitted for an emergency section of a term baby girl. She had had a rather uncomplicated pregnancy till week 39 of gestation when she presented with HELP syndrome, which is a syndrome that involves high blood pressure and injury to multiple organs. So she was admitted to urgently induce labor, but during this process, her baby's heart rate started dropping, which means that she was in distress. So to save her baby, they did emergency cesarean delivery. And during this process, she developed placental abruption, where the placenta abnormally detaches from the womb and a tear in her liver, both without a clear reason. Three days after the delivery, she got short of breath and she was transferred to the Cleveland Clinic, which is when I had the privilege of caring after her. We discovered that she had papillary muscle rupture or a tear in an important muscle of the heart, leading to shock and heart failure. Unfortunately, despite all efforts, including multiple open heart surgeries and being listed for heart-lung transplant, we were unable to save her life. Autopsy showed an aortic rupture and genetic testing was consistent with vascular Ehlers-Danlos in gene CALL3A1. So Todd, I'm truly, truly sorry for your loss. As physicians, we're forced into seeing death as a very natural process, but this was very hard, and I think it was especially hard for me to process Lisa's death, especially because I really identified with her. She was a young female, similar age as I am, so I I was really impacted by her. Can you tell us what was going on through your mind while all of this was happening? Yeah, so when all this started happening, I was just thinking, how could this happen to her? She was so healthy. Like I said before, she weighed 100 pounds pre-pregnancy. We worked out a few times a week. Um, We trained every summer for a 200-mile bike ride that we did in two days. So she was not unused to intense workouts. She ate very healthy. And there were no other complications in pregnancy. So it just didn't really seem right that she would be experiencing such trauma. The night before we went in, we actually went on a long walk and then went to a friend's house for dinner and everything seemed to be normal. So Lizzie, one of the things that she refused to do is she said, I refuse to waddle whenever I walk. I'm pregnant, but I refuse to waddle. I'm going to walk straight. So I call it practice walking. We walked probably um, two or three miles almost nightly whenever she was pregnant. So just the thought of like, how could this be happening to her to go from the most healthiest that I could think of to basically battling for her life. And because we have Dr. Dietz here, I want to ask him a question. Is it common to see a presentation like this without any like alarm features or a very sudden presentation like Lizzie had without really any clear, obvious signs of disease? So this is a very frustrating illness for physicians to diagnose and to manage. Most often, gradual enlargement of a blood vessel is silent. There won't be any warning sign that a blood vessel is getting big. It's also true in vascular EDS that blood vessels often do not get big before they tear or they rupture. So it is truly a sudden spontaneous event where someone will be feeling fine one moment and will be in uh, real dire straits the next. 
About 70% of people with vascular EDS are diagnosed based upon a major complication that they experience. You know, so unfortunately, they have to go through a vascular event or a bowel tear in order for someone to think about the diagnosis and do appropriate testing. Of those who get diagnosed without a major event, the majority of them have a family history of a catastrophic event, as uh, we'll hear about for Lizzie's family. But I have to admit that there are many, many people with this diagnosis who remain undiagnosed and who are not able to take advantage of the best medical care for this condition. The outward features are somewhat subtle compared to many other vascular connective tissue disorders. The main features that lead to someone being diagnosed without a family history or without a catastrophic event are seen in the general population. So club foot is one of them, that, but that's only seen in 8% of people with vascular EDS. The other ones that really contribute are things like easy bruising or thin skin or joints that are loose in the fingers, things that can go unnoticed. Again, things that are very common in the general population And the challenge is to recognize when all those things are happening in combination. Why is this person have bruising and loose joints in the fingers and thin skin? Todd, I'd be interested to hear your impression. In retrospect, do you remember things about Lizzie that you think pointed to the fact that there might be something going on? Yeah, looking back, I think now that we have diagnosis, there were many things that she had, but they were very subtle. So easy bruising, but, you know, uh, when we told this to her family, everybody was, you know, real worried because what's easy, what, what's considered easy bruising. But she did have a, an area where her skin was kind of translucent, but it wasn't all over her. She got sick in November, had the stomach flu And she actually had a major blood vessel burst in her eye. And everybody was like, you know, what's wrong? And, oh, you know, I had the the stomach flu and it seemed semi-normal. She had a random bruise on her leg during pregnancy. And she contacted the doctor and that she was worried about a, a clot. And they said, well, it would have to, it would most likely be in your calf if it was a clot. But she couldn't explain why that happened to her. But really, other than that, fairly normal. Uh, There wasn't anything when her family found out about this diagnosis, other than one of her sisters that has had multiple uh, medical issues related to this that we can touch on later. None of them really knew, is it me? Do I have it? Do I have it? Do I not have it? You know, they didn't, there wasn't a clear picture of, oh, that's obvious. These three kids have it and these three kids do not have it. So. It it is not obvious, at least it wasn't in her family situation. Dr. Dietz, you bring up that point, you know, and I agree. One of the difficult things is how Lizzie was seemingly completely healthy, save for some small clues beforehand. As adult medicine doctors, we often take care of people with chronic illnesses. In pediatrics and taking care of people with aortic disease, you probably see this situation more. How do you process this and how do you help your patients' families process this? 
One important message that I'd like to uh, emphasize for Todd and Lizzie's family is that this is not anyone's fault. It, it's very easy to look back and say, what should I have seen? What could I have done differently? This is the nature of this condition. When people do learn about the diagnosis and there is an opportunity to provide follow-up and medical care, you know, they often go to the internet and read worst case scenarios. So I, I stress to people that everyone's an individual and that you should not infer that the worst cases that you read about are describing your future. I try to stress that knowledge is power. There are things that we know how to do that we truly believe make a difference, including frequent imaging, certain medications, some exercise restrictions. And Todd, I know you mentioned that Lizzie was a very active person. We believe most activity is good for people. It will naturally lower heart rate and blood pressure and work in their favor. But um, you know, when you were mentioning intense activities, I'm wondering, did that include weightlifting or you know, heavy isometric training? Was that part of what you did together? Not not as much weightlifting, but I would say definitely intense cardio training with riding bicycles. And she was also a runner, but I wouldn't say she did much heavy weightlifting. I mean, we would have been encouraging her if we knew about this ahead of time to remain active, to do lots of moving activities, perhaps to pull back a bit from really competitive activities where she was pushing herself to exhaustion. But, you know, the, the message I try to get across to someone who's newly diagnosed or to someone whose family member uh, was diagnosed and, and had a serious outcome was that we need to take every opportunity to educate each other, physicians educating each other, to educate family members, and to advocate for patients and families through again, education, but also the important activities of patient advocacy groups for these conditions. But my biggest, I think, message in the first encounter is to dispel the concept of guilt. So I hope that message has come across uh, loud and clear for you, Todd. Yes, it, it definitely has. Absolutely, Dr. Dietz. I, I couldn't agree more. So important for family members to hear that. And so, Todd, how were you able to process this all and at the same time take care of your baby girl, Juniper? What support systems did you have at that time and lean on? So Juniper, when she was born, she had a traumatic delivery. So they kept her in the ICU or the NICU. So the first couple of days, I didn't have much responsibility. But when she was released, she was released to family. And I was so thankful to have my mom and my sisters and Lizzie's family, they had flown out from California and friends from church that would literally have dropped anything to do something for us. We had to actually turn away more help than we could accept. And it was very humbling to know that so many people cared about us. But I felt kind of guilty that I couldn't enjoy Juniper. And I felt kind of guilty that I couldn't uh, really appreciate her as a, as a baby with all that was happening with Lizzie. Obviously, I was very distracted as a father, but I have been able to process through that and don't feel that guilt because Lizzie needed me by her side 
more than Juniper at that time. I can totally see how someone can feel guilt in a situation like this. I would probably do that as well or feel that way too. Tell us what advice can you give us as healthcare providers to better support family members and patients through moments like this one? What could have helped you deal with this a little bit better? What could we have done better during her hospitalization? So first, I just want to say how caring and gracious the Cleveland Clinic was to us. It was right from the beginning of the pandemic. And so the hospital was trying to navigate through all these different changes that were coming about. And it was really uncharted territory for them. And we could kind of see that from our perspective, just not even knowing what they could and couldn't do. But they were super accommodating for our family. In spite of all these the regulations, they were very accommodating for our family and very gracious to us. Because Lizzie's case was so complex and fluid, there are many doctors that I talked to. I honestly can't even remember how many, but there were so many that I had talked to. And it kind of became overwhelming knowing, you know, all these doctors are coming from a different angle, their area of expertise, and just kind of knowing, okay, is this important? Is this not important? You know, is this a life or death situation? You know, is this doctor just kind of coming in to help with her comfort? So I think one of the things that would have been nice is to have a care manager with us that could kind of help the family navigate through all the way from the time that she was in the ICU and they didn't really know what was going on up until, you know, transferring with us from Akron to Cleveland. That would have been helpful. I know that with her case being so complex and so unknown, you know, there was a day that she had recovered from her surgery or her first surgery and, you know, was extubated and then she crashed. So knowing when that care manager would have kind of departed or come and helped us would have been tough to know. But when Lizzie was put on the heart transplant list, we had one of the social workers, her name was Kay Kendall. She worked with us and was tremendous and kind of filled that role for us. That was kind of towards the end of our stay, but she was super helpful. And I could just see the value of having someone like that maybe a little bit sooner on. But like I said, her situation was quite complex and quite unknown to so many people. So that's maybe one of the areas that would help. But like I said, I just want to just go back one more time and just say how caring and, and generous the, the clinic was to us and our family. I just wanted to say that thanks for providing that feedback. It's sometimes hard for us to sort of see what challenges you have from a patient perspective. Yes, I can't even imagine, Todd, how overwhelming it must all have been with so many people looking after her. And you're right, often our patients, one of the things that can be very disorienting is meeting a lot of doctors and hearing their perspective on condition. And it definitely is good feedback to have someone to help manage all of that. Now, Todd, vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a heritable condition. Were there clues in Lizzie's family members that might have indicated a familial problem? Yeah. So Lizzie's brother actually passed away at age 15 he was very healthy and active, and he had an aortic dissection. And at that time, they thought maybe it was Marfan, and genetic testing was done, and it came back negative for Marfan. So they kind of let it lie and thought, you know, maybe this is just some sort of 
random happening, random event. Lizzie's sister, I, I had mentioned this earlier, in the year prior to Lizzie's passing, she had multiple pneumothorax events. And so that was maybe something that has that pointed towards this. And I don't know if this information ever was updated in Lizzie's chart, but I think these two familial events provided valuable clues to the doctors whenever they were trying to determine what was maybe wrong with Lizzie. Dr. Dietz, what's running through your mind when you hear this family history for Lizzie? So upon reading about Lizzie and her family, it was like an echo chamber in my mind. Every time my mind started to wander and I started to think of a a variety of diagnoses for why Lizzie got into trouble toward the end of pregnancy, the echo was, but her brother died at age 15. That is something that I would never be able to dismiss. There is no innocent cause for a 15-year-old to die suddenly from aortic tear or rupture. And I would hope that as Lizzie and her family members received further medical care after this horrible event um, that happened to her brother, that would come up at every visit. You know, have you learned anything new? Do you experience any of these possible features of a connective tissue disorder. You know, after hearing that her sister had uh, a pneumothorax as a young person, a spontaneous pneumothorax not in association with trauma, you know, as if someone is screaming in your ear that this needs to be understood. Having said that, Nature threw a curveball in this family. Usually, if more than one child is affected with what's called a dominant condition, meaning you only need one abnormal copy of a gene to have the condition, then one of the parents would show outward features of the condition. And uh, my understanding is that that was not the case, is not the case for Lizzie's parents. Indeed, her mother had eight uneventful pregnancies, I've, I've been told. So there are a number of hypotheses that physicians could have been working under. One possibility is that Lizzie's brother had a new condition due to a new mutation or gene change that was unique to him. That actually happens quite frequently in vascular connective tissue disorders, and that's true of about 50% of people with vascular EDS. They're the only person in their family that has the gene change and has the condition. But there are other possibilities. You know, one possibility would be that one of the parents has the gene change in every cell of their body, but for unexplained reasons is not showing the outward features, something that we call non-penetrance. You know, that would have raised the possibility that someone without any findings could have more than one affected kid. You know, and that's what the conditions in uh, Lizzie and her brother and her sister, you know, might have suggested. The third possibility is something even more rare. It it only occurs in about 2 to 3% of people with vascular EDS. And it's a condition called mosaicism, meaning some cells in the body, but not all cells in the body, have a gene change in one person. It might be few enough cells that are altered that that person will never show a medical problem, 
but there is some risk that they will pass on that gene change to more than one of their children. And my understanding is that is the situation that was ultimately revealed for Lizzie's mother, that that she has a low level of cells that have this gene change, but a high enough level of the cells to have passed on this gene change to three of her children. So I think the right answer is to maintain curiosity and vigilance when you see something like the death of a 15-year-old boy without a known medical problem and a pneumothorax in his sister. You know, I think if Lizzie had been diagnosed in childhood on that basis, there were things that could have been done differently and could have made a difference. One comment that I'd like to just make here is because of the miles from where Lizzie was and because of the change of doctors over the years, I think that complicated the information being updated accurately. And, and it was only a year from the time that her sister experienced these to the time of her passing. And so just the information did not flow very quickly to Lizzie's chart. And Lizzie might not have even mentioned that to her doctor. So I think that had looking at the whole picture now, it seems very obvious that was probably the case that oh, a red flag should have gone up. But how do you get that information updated quickly into our chart? And, you know, I, I've just kind of brainstormed or thought about how does, how does the medical community how are they able to share information rapidly with everybody at all different care centers throughout the country, throughout the world? And so I think that poses a major challenge and obviously was something that could have had some different results had there been that information being updated quickly. Todd, I think you're exactly right that it is very challenging to efficiently communicate information between caretakers in many different locations. But this also emphasizes the need for people to believe that taking a family history should be part of most medical encounters. You know, every time Lizzie went to see her family doctor or internist, the question should have been any updates on your family history or you know what, I've not seen you before. Let's do a brief family history. So that's a challenge to myself to always do that. That's a challenge to my colleagues to always do that. And I think that this is an important learning point that will help us to honor Lizzie's memory by making sure that we all try to do better in the future. And I would say that it is a challenge to me as well, to the patient, to take that seriously, to take the medical history seriously, and to fill out the, the charts that we are given from the office and not just pencil whip them, if you will, because we don't know what, how, what's going on inside of us, what could potentially lead to healthcare is providing good care. For. So I think it's a challenge for both the patient and the caregiver. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up, Todd. That's one of the reasons why we're actually doing this, because we both want to learn about what we could have done better, what we could do better in the future as well. And I'm certainly going to take family history very seriously from here on. And then the other thing you brought up, I think it's very important. And as, as a healthcare system, we don't do a great job communicating between charts. 
And that's something that we all struggle about. But I think, you know, having like a universal electronic medical record would be ideal. And, and as physicians, I think we all would love to have that. And there are some challenges in doing that. But I think that, that as a medical community, we're sort of trying to move towards that direction. Now, Todd, once you learn about Lizzie's genetic mutation, can you tell us how you felt about the recommendation of screening your daughter? How, how did you manage that recommendation? And how were you able to sort of just wait patiently for the result? That must have been very, very difficult. Yeah. So we worked with a genetic counselor, Brittany Hansen, at the Cleveland Clinic. And she knew about the, the situation. She knew about Lizzie. And so just kind of knowing the trauma that we had suffered and had been through, she was very sensitive to our situation. It didn't push us one way or another to get Juniper tested. She actually said, you know, we can wait a couple of years because this doesn't really affect her until she's a little bit older. But at that time, I had gone through so much trauma and just the worry of wondering what the results would be. You know, she had a 50-50 chance. I was told that she may or may not have this. And so just having that anxiety or worry just would add kind of added to my stress just personally. And so really, it was just one more thing in my life that I needed to get figured out. And um, so the waiting was challenging. And I, I think it was kind of simultaneously the, the full ups, which would be Lizzie's family was waiting for their results. And so we kind of were all in this waiting pattern, but it was good. And obviously that her results came back negative and I'm very thankful for that. But because of the trauma I suffered, I was a little bit numb to even getting those positive results. Can you reflect on what your reaction might've been if the results came back positive? I, I know it would have been sadness and disappointment, but after that, do you think it might've been, you know, somehow empowering to say, okay, we know what we're dealing with. I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm going to make sure she gets the best care. Or do you think the reaction might've been, boy, um, I wish I hadn't done the testing. I could have had a few years without this type of worry. What do you think your reaction might've been? Yeah. I think I would have gotten her tested right away, even knowing the results, because then I can do something about it. And I, and I think even just plugging into some of these communities where, where we could have gotten support, I would have probably plugged in more than I am now, obviously, because just having a, a team of doctors and having the VEDS Foundation, I would have definitely wanted to plug in more with that. So, and, and probably the rolling up my sleeve and saying, you know, this is what your mother had. We're going to do the best we can with the information that we have and hopes that it can change the results different from what happened with Lizzie. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I think they did a very good job waiting for the results and it's actually been maybe a relief finally knowing what has happened. And with Lizzie's sister, the one that did test positive for vascular EDS, it gives her a path for treatment. And so I think that all in all, to have answers, like Dr. Deeds was saying, information is power. We can now kind of navigate through what the next steps are. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And Dr. Deeds, can you tell us a little bit about what 
treatments are that are available currently for patients with vascular EDS. You already touched upon sort of the activity limitations that you counsel patients about. Can you tell us a little bit about pregnancy recommendation, avoidance of pregnancy? Sure. So there are a variety of principles that we use to care for someone with vascular EDS. We do believe that reducing hemodynamic stress that's pushing on fragile blood vessels makes some sense. And therefore, blood pressure lowering medications are often used even in someone that has a normal blood pressure. There are two broad classes of medications currently used, beta blockers or a type of medication called angiotensin receptor blockers. I have to admit that there's not a lot of great evidence to support use of either of those classes of medications. But again, because of the theory that reducing stress on the blood vessels should be beneficial, they are typically used. There is also good theoretical evidence that high-dose vitamin C can be of benefit for people with vascular EDS. Vitamin C is a cofactor for an enzyme that makes molecular bridges between collagen molecules, and it has been shown that supplementation of vitamin C can increase the activity of that enzyme. In essence, you're making the best use of the amount of collagen that you have available. We do recognize that pregnancy is a risk to women with vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Overall, about 5% of women with vascular EDS that become pregnant will have some form of major complication, either an arterial or a uterine event where there's a tear in the uterus and the risk of bleeding. That risk is even higher if someone has been previously shown to have existing vascular disease, such as a chronic tear of a blood vessel. So we do counsel women very carefully. We include in that counseling that the risk associated with pregnancy extends into the first few weeks to months after delivery. In fact, that tends to be the time of highest risk for women with vascular connective tissue disorders. We do perform frequent imaging for people with vascular EDS. That includes imaging of the heart because of a risk that the mitral valve will be floppy and will have leakage. It also allows us to look at the base of the aorta, the aortic root. You know, that is, the aortic root is like the canary in the coal mine in most vascular connective tissue disorders. It goes wrong first, but that's not true in vascular EDS. In fact, it's rare that you see someone with aortic root enlargement. So, you know, that would have been a question, for example, that I would have been asking about Lizzie's brother. Where in his aorta did his problem develop? Was it in the root of the aorta that might have suggested Marfan syndrome or Loewy's Dietz syndrome? Or was it in the descending aorta that might have um, suggested some other diagnosis? We do frequent imaging because there's now a general mindset that problems should be identified and addressed relatively early. The older mindset with vascular EDS 
was that the blood vessels were so fragile that a surgeon should avoid operating at any cost until they were quite sure that something catastrophic would happen within the next day if they did nothing. And indeed, there were many poor surgical outcomes associated with vascular EDS. But folks gradually recognized that people with vascular EDS often had a history of many successful surgeries at a younger age before they were diagnosed with vascular EDS. So the mindset now is to not wait until someone is older, that their vascular lesion has reached a, you know, a truly critical point, and that you're doing a, a desperate attempt to save someone. Rather, you should do a early planned surgical intervention to try to take care of a problem. That doesn't mean that anyone should be casual about doing a surgical procedure for someone with vascular EDS, but in, in balance, it now makes sense to do frequent imaging, find things early, and try to ad address them. Thank you for all of those recommendations, Dr. Dietz. I think this is very important, especially to someone like Liz's sister, for example, that now has this known condition. What are the screening recommendations? What are the avoidances in life, lifestyle modifications? And then going forward, maybe some treatments that could be sort of in the horizon. So Todd, you have probably received expert advice from people like Dr. Dietz, especially maybe Lissy's sister has received some advice from them. But can you tell us about other resources that family members and patients with vascular EDS have like the Marfan Foundation or the vascular EDS movement? And what has it meant to Lissy's family? Yeah, so from the beginning, when it was suspicious that it was vascular EDS, the Fulop family had contacted a specialist in, in the area, and they sent out a nurse right away. Uh, her name is Megan. And she actually went to the Fulop's house to help them get the genetic tests done to do the kits. She actually, Megan, has vascular EDS in her family. And so she's been very passionate about and been a great resource to the Forbes. And then I think it was her that pointed them to the VEDS movement and the Marfin Foundation. Within that, um, I know that the VEDS movement, I don't know much about what all they do. I know education is a big part of what they're doing. But they actually did like a, an interview with the Fulop family. And they're, they're kind of allowing the Fulop family to tell their story. And to really educate people on what vascular EDS is. And, you know, it's, I think it's been very helpful for the full family to have that community. That's fantastic. And I think it's actually very powerful that Megan, the person that came to you, actually has the syndrome because I, I think that definitely has way more implications and uh, way more power than someone that might not have that disease because they can certainly, they can certainly emphasize how it feels and what implications there are from their own perspective. And Dr. Dietz, can you tell us about your involvement with the Marfan Foundation? Sure. So I've been a participant in the Marfan Foundation since 1989. That includes being on the professional advisory board for the Marfan Foundation for the past 30 years. The foundation has many critical activities, and including education of patients and physicians. 
They have uh, superb printed materials that they share with families. They have a yearly meeting where physicians from all over the country come together to teach each other and also to teach patients and their families. We also run a clinic at that annual meeting to provide access to experts, to people who live in areas that are underserved with regard to the care of connective tissue disorders. The VEDS movement is now under the umbrella of the Marfan Foundation, and I've been thrilled to be a participant in their activities since its inception. In fact, uh, next week, the VEDS movement will be having an international virtual meeting to talk about research progress in vascular EDS. We're quite excited about that. I've also had the privilege to be involved in many other advocacy groups for vascular EDS. That includes the EDS Society, as well as the Defy Foundation. So there are a host of excellent advocacy groups that support the vascular EDS community. So the question is, how can referring physicians tap into the network of specialists that care for people with vascular connective tissue disorders? Certainly, the foundations are an excellent source of information. They maintain lists of centers that self-identify as caring for patients with vascular connective tissue disorders. They can also connect local physicians with experts at other centers for consultation, even without a visit. And, you know, now in the days of COVID, and I anticipate in the days following COVID, uh, there will be the opportunity for telemedicine visits. So people from all over the country can have access to medical experts. So actually, I just want to maybe ask one question to Dr. Dietz in reference to what he was just talking about there with education. So Dr. Dietz, one of the things because of the rarity of this disorder, it seems like many physicians may or may not know about or be educated on vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So how is the VEDS movement and the Marfan Foundation pushing that information out? One, I guess, situation we had, so Lizzie's sister, when she was talking with her lung doctor, didn't seem to be very aware or educated on vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome until after her sister brought the information back that Lizzie had passed away from complications due to vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On the other hand, I have a cousin that was with us when we were going through all of this. And she is actually a resident and going to be a doctor. And that was the first thing that kind of came to her mind was, ooh, this looks a lot like it could be vascular Ehlers-Danlos. So, you know, from, from the doctors that are practicing and have been in the field for quite some time, it seems like maybe there's not as much education there as there are maybe for new, new students coming out of school. So how is the VEDS movement and some of these foundations pushing information out to doctors that have been in the field for or been caring for patients for quite some time? That's an excellent question, Todd. Um, so at the annual meeting, there is an opportunity for care providers from centers all over the country to come to the clinic and accompany experts 
in their clinical evaluation and in the development of a management plan for patients with vascular connective tissue disorders. But we recognize that that's just the tip of the iceberg. The greater challenge is to spread knowledge widely um, throughout the medical community. I think you're exactly right. We should target medical schools and medical school curriculum designers to integrate rare genetic diseases into the formal curriculum that will you know, really reinforce the information that while these conditions are individually rare, they're collectively common and burdensome. And it's our obligation to know about them or to remain curious and learn about them if the question comes up about whether uh, someone has a vascular connective tissue disorder. You know, a physician that doesn't know much about vascular EDS um, might be a fantastic physician. You know, you're good at what you do. The problem arises when someone doesn't know much about a condition but isn't willing to admit that and isn't curious and isn't willing to seek advice and take advice from experts. We uh, currently develop partnerships with local physicians all over the country and even all over the world. And, you know, we might see someone with vascular EDS one year. They may see their local physician the next year. We stay in constant contact with those local physicians. We, we share information. We share new knowledge as it comes out. And then the following year, they'd come back to see us. So there's continuity of care in both places, and there's free communication between the physicians at both places. I think that's a model that works really well. Thank you. I would also emphasize, and I think it's a point you made, that patients have to advocate for themselves. You know, now that the diagnosis is known for your family members, specifically Lizzie's sister, she likely knows more about vascular EDS than many of the physicians that she will see. And, you know, if she's not getting answers that make sense to her, if she's not recognizing curiosity and, you know, dedication to find out everything that is knowable, she needs to push the issue. She needs to find another physician. She needs to travel occasionally to a, a site that has true expertise. She needs to tap into these patient advocacy groups that can connect her to the right people. There, there, there are many opportunities, but often, unfortunately, the, the patient and family have to take the initiative to make sure that the right connections are, are developed. And thankfully, she does have Dr. Liang, who has been, who basically became her primary care doctor and has given her those resources. I mean, he will say, Dr. Liang, I don't know, maybe you're, you're familiar with him, but it's my understanding that vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is his passion. And he spends so much time researching and caring for patients in that. And, and he's told her, here's my cell phone number. If you have a problem, you call me directly. And, and that was through the VEDS movement and through, I think, uh, Megan is the nurse in his office that got Lizzie's sister hooked up with the, the right caregiver for, for her condition. She could honestly not be seeing a better person. I, I know David Liang really well. We're uh, good friends and a longtime partners in the care of patients with vascular connective tissue disorders. He's a true expert. He's also a a true gentleman. So um, she's in good hands. 
That's great. And Dr. Dietz, thank you for reminding us to empower our patients to advocate for themselves. Todd, do you have any parting messages for our audience who may be taking care of patients like Lizzie? Yeah, so when Lizzie came to Cleveland Clinic, main campus, she was in very bad condition. So one of the things that I wanted to do was get pictures of what Lizzie looked like a week before. We had just been traveling in Mexico, which was two months before she had this event and she gave birth to Juniper. So I took a couple pictures of, of our trip and I took a couple pictures of, you know, just that really showed who Lizzie was. So I think it helped physicians quite a bit, but that's one of the things that I think um, even sitting down with the patient and their family as a physician and just trying to learn who they were before they came in in this horrible condition, because you see them laying there and I, I saw Lizzie laying there and I, I just thought, that's not my wife. Like that, that's not who she is. She's, she's not a sickly person. She's uh, healthy, you know? And so the physician trying to understand who the person was prior to this traumatic event, I think is very important for giving her the appropriate care and just knowing that she was so healthy and active one week prior to this, how could this be happening to happening to her? Could it be a genetic condition? Thank you for this very powerful message, Todd. And I, I totally agree that it, it is very helpful to have a perspective of who patients were before we start taking care of them. And, and thank you again for your time. Thank you for your selflessness in, in wanting to share her story with us. And, and I admire you in so many ways. You just are such a strong person to be able to sit here and tell us so much about her that I just can't thank you enough. The only thing I'd add to those wonderful comments by Todd is that we also have to keep in mind who people are after they're diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder. They are not and should not be defined by their diagnosis. They are people that are parents and sons and daughters and firemen and physicians and accountants that have great lives and wonderful hobbies and all sorts of interests. And I've had to work in my career to remember that I care for people who happen to have connective tissue disorders, not patients that should solely be defined by that. Todd, tell us more about what Lizzie meant to her community. Yeah, so Lizzie was very energetic and spunky, and that kind of showed in every aspect of her life. She was a go-getter, and she was inspiring in this way. She was very active in our church community. She was very active in uh, her woman's Bible study group. She was active at uh, the Jam Smucker Company, where she was an accountant. And people didn't really forget Lizzie because of how energetic and just inspiring she was because of how maybe intense she was. Uh, you didn't forget a conversation with Lizzie. Some of my friends said she was the most intense talker they knew of. So she was just into every conversation and just was interested in what people had to say and interested in, in understanding who someone was when they were talking to. And that was a quality that I admired a, a lot in Lizzie and wanted to, and hopefully can have that same quality in my life as well. Wow, absolutely. She sounds truly special and it's very much evident in 
you know, the amount of people that cared for you guys and, and cared for her in your, in your time of need. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. This means a lot to my family and I. Thank you all for being here. Again, it was such an honor. We learned that Todd and Lizzie's baby girl Juniper's birthday is coming up. And I can't think of a better way to close than to wish baby Juniper a very happy first birthday. Happy birthday, Juniper. I'm so glad we had this discussion. I can't thank Todd enough uh, for granting us the opportunity of learning about Lizzie's personal life and I have so so many take-home points, so many lessons learned from this episode. And I think the one I will stick to me closely is the importance of learning about the patient before they come to us and how Todd taught us that it, it just gives us a super different perspective, learning about the personal life and how they came to us. Because we tend to focus on them when they come and, and thereafter, but just the importance of having context and, and knowing who they were before they came to us and, and how healthy she was. And then the other thing I think is the importance of family history that I, I think he was the one that brought it up in her case. And as soon as she came to the unit, we asked about family history, but he also sort of brought it up. So I think it was easy in, in her case because he was very on, like, on point about the importance of this family history. I couldn't agree more, Erica. I'll just add to that, you know, with the family history, it's often thought of as maybe a stagnant thing. You know, sometimes it's auto-populated and we have other things on our mind. We don't ask them more about it, but it changes every time. And it's something we should focus on in primary care appointments and in the hospital to update that. It is so important for a whole like patient-centered comprehensive care. And I also, you know, learned about the importance of foundation in helping families process and also connecting them to important care that other family members may need. So that was great to have that be showcased in this discussion. And having Dr. Dietz was such a treat as part of this conversation. His perspective and insight truly added so much to the conversation. Dr. Dietz, what were your thoughts about this discussion? I can honestly say that I learned a tremendous amount uh, about families and their needs in these moments of crisis. I would also say that I, I've learned more broadly, I continue to learn daily about the mysteries and challenges and opportunities inherent to genetic diseases and approaching diseases from a genetic perspective. So in many cases, this family read the book, you know, a, a young man with vascular EDS passed away of aortic rupture as he was going through puberty. That is a known time of great vulnerability for young men with vascular EDS in particular. A sister with vascular EDS was doing well until late in pregnancy and then died from a series of catastrophic events. You know, that's when young women often first manifest the serious nature of their disease. And yet this case also defied expectations. You know, the mother who had no manifestations of EDS and had low level 
mosaicism of the mutation in her body went on to have three affected children. You know, that is not expected. And in many ways, that is not fair, but that's what nature handed us. I don't know why this patient had HELP syndrome. Was it really HELP syndrome? You know, I think we can learn from reflecting on that question. We do know that a intramural hematoma or a emerging dissection can lead to a consumptive coagulopathy that can, in many ways, mimic HELP syndrome. That's a learning opportunity that we should not walk away from. You know, we should try to convince ourselves, yes, this was HELP syndrome or perhaps not. Would it have made a difference if uh, at the initial presentation with abdominal pain and a low hematocrit, if she had had comprehensive vascular imaging? Was there an aortic lesion that was present? Would that have influenced the outcome? I'm not sure. I think she received excellent care. You know, we would rarely, if ever, go, you know, approach a patient with vascular EDS with a catheter, but I won't deny that she needed a intraaortic balloon pump. You know, did that culminate in the tear of her suprarenal aorta? I don't know. But I I think we should all be humbled and challenged by the fact that if family history had been revisited at every visit, and if somebody said, huh, a death of a 15-year-old male and a pneumothorax and a young woman, there's something here worth understanding. I I really do think that we as a medical community could have made a a difference for this woman. So I, I don't approach that with uh, a sense of blame, but I approach, you know, I view it with a sense of obligation to learn from our experiences and to to do better. I, I think this was a wonderful session and I was privileged to be allowed to, to be part of it. Thank you so, so much, Dr. D. It's truly an honor to have you on and so humbling for me to learn that you're still feeling so touched and still having takeaways after spending your life dedicating, you know, to treating people with vascular disorders. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the research you do in this field and for caring for patients and for joining us today. The only last thing I'll offer, and you can cut this out, but one of my pet peeves is when a rotating cardiology resident or fellow says to me, oh, I've already seen three cases of Marfan syndrome. I don't need to see any more. (laughs) I have seen thousands of cases with Marfan syndrome, and I look forward to learning from the next one. So stay curious. That's a great piece of advice. Absolutely. Great message. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dietz. It's really been a a true privilege to have you and to meet you at least virtually and to learn so much from you. Take care.